0: If you were watching the news, you saw him trying to communicate to a crowd and there was a shirtless protester, uh, a male shirtless protester, uh, that was uh, heckling his every word. And I heard lots of reports about what took place, and pretty well every reporter and every journalist took the opportunity to say something more negative about Rob Ford. Uh, But there was one person who made a very, I thought a very relevant point and that was, regardless of what Rob Ford's done, and regardless of his past, uh, and regardless of what his title really means now, he's still the mayor of Toronto. He's still a uh, a person, a candidate who's who's uh, looking to be reelected in the next term. How did a protester that was causing so much disruption actually get that close to the mayor of Toronto? And is it just because it was Rob Ford that it was okay? Because it kind of goes against what I think we would all understand, that if someone is considered by the world standards to be an important person, to have an important title, to be a powerful person, to be a celebrity, to be famous, there are certain expectations, there's uh, written and unwritten rules of how you're to conduct yourself uh, in that person's presence. And I think the greatest example that we would all be able to understand and, and relate to in a certain way is the Queen. If you were to act inappropriately in the presence of the Queen, uh, it becomes international news, international headless. And there's been some famous faux pas uh, as far as what certain people have done in the presence uh, of the Queen of England. Uh, Mickey Rooney took her hand and kissed it. People were outraged. Uh, there have been a number of people who have put their arm around the Queen. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister was, was destroyed by the British press because he dared to put his arm around the Queen. Uh, Michelle Obama put her arm around the Queen and everyone... And then everyone was uh, happy to see the Queen reciprocate by putting her arm around Michelle Obama. Kate Middleton's mother chewed gum while meeting the queen. And my favorite was uh, then-President George Bush, when meeting the queen, said to Queen Elizabeth, I'm the black sheep of my family. Who's the black sheep of your family? And uh, fortunately, Barbara, Bo- uh, not Barbara, George's wife, quickly responded, you don't have to answer that. But <laughs> famous full pause with the queen. In fact, there's written rules, of what to do and and not to do in the presence of the queen. And and I've got a couple of them here that I printed off. And just to give you an example of how important it is that you act appropriately if you find yourself in the presence of the queen, do rise when the queen walks into the room. Don't introduce yourself. Don't offer your hand to be shaken or touch the queen in any way. Do take her hand if To shake if she offers it, but don't grasp it tightly or shake vigorously. (laughs) Don't ever refer to any member of the royal family by his or her first name. Instead, refer to him or her by title. Do dress appropriately and conservatively to meet the queen. Don't, too bad President Bush didn't know this one, don't ask the queen or any member of the royal family any questions about their personal lives, political opinions, or anything even the least bit controversial. Do make polite conversation following Her Majesty's lead. But it's not the time to crack jokes. Don't address any royal person as you. Do utilize proper table manners. uh, And then finally, do stop eating when the queen takes her last bite. So if you ever get invited to dinner at uh, Buckingham Palace, uh, eat fast or hope that the queen eats slow. Because uh, when she's done, uh, so are you done. You know, the reality is, most of us would never expect to find ourselves directly in the presence of the Queen. Uh, it's not like you go up to Buckingham Palace and knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to have tea with the Queen. You know, what kind of person actually gets an invitation to be in the presence of the Queen? Uh, what person, what kind of person's eligible to walk into the presence of the Queen? Uh, without any obstruction? And not just meeting or coming into the presence of the queen. What kind of person would ever be able to actually dwell with the queen? Can you imagine walking up to Buckingham Palace with a suitcase in your hand? And and if you could get by the guards, knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm, I'm uh, I'm here to stay in the palace with the queen. None of us would ever expect that. So, so, who is eligible to go into the presence of the Queen uninterrupted? Uh, who would ever be able to dwell, to, to remain forever uh, in the presence of the Queen? There is a much greater context to which those questions apply. And those questions can be asked when we are thinking about God Himself Who's eligible? Come into the very presence of God without any obstruction. Who, what kind of person would be eligible to to actually remain in the presence of God forever? Yeah, I think of those questions at times when I'm driving to church on a Sunday. I think of those questions when I'm I'm with my family or when I'm personally praying to God. Who actually is eligible to just walk into the presence of God, into the throne room of God in prayer? When I think about my personal relationship with God, I sometimes ponder those questions. When I consider what my future hope and eternal destination might be, I can't help but think of those questions. You know, this summer we are doing this series where where those of us who are speaking are going to be sharing Life verses or life passages, uh, passages that are favorites of ours, that have spoken significantly to us. And, and I love the Psalms and uh, enjoy preaching from them. And one of my favorite Psalms, which you might question as we go through this morning, why it would be my favorite is Psalm 15 that Amanda read for us earlier. Uh, because it speaks very seriously to those questions that I just asked and as you reflect on what the psalmist has to say in Psalm 15 it gives me the basis uh, for the hope that I have and so I want us to consider those questions as we look at Psalm 15 this morning who can come into the presence of God without any obstruction who's eligible to actually remain in the presence of God forever so turn, uh, if you've got your Bible, uh, or if you've got the Pew Bible, page 381, to Psalm 15, and we're going to take a look at it. And uh, I think, Kendra, were you on the door this morning? So when you came in this morning, Kendra would have greeted you and given you a bulletin. And, and uh, I'm sure there was a little bit of, of, of conversation that took place. But could you imagine this morning as you walked in to the church, What was expected of you is that you had asked Kendra a question. And you said, Kendra, who is worthy to enter and to worship? You know, in Israelite history, this is what they did. And Psalm 15 was used just that way. Uh, It is known as entrance liturgy. And so the Israelite would come to the temple and would ask the Levitical gatekeeper or doorkeeper, who is worthy to enter into worship? And in response, the Levitical gate doorkeeper would respond with the balance of Psalm 15, verses 2 through 5. It was used by the Israelites as they journeyed to the festivals and and the feasts. As, they were, as the pilgrims were journeying to Jerusalem, one of them would call out, who is worthy to enter into worship? They would actually repeat the words of verse 1 of Psalm 15. And the rest would call back, verses 2 to 5, uh, in response. Uh, Israelites use Psalm 15 in their personal and, and family devotions. And it's, it's entrance liturgy, but it's also considered to be a wisdom psalm because it pertains to uh, the moral implications of those who desire to worship God. And so the Israelites would teach this to their children. And we're going to see that the question is asked in verse 1. And then in verses 2 to 5, the psalmist gives 10 answers to the question. And so if you were an Israelite child, uh, what would happen is you would be instructed in this passage, and you would learn using your 10 fingers the answers to this psalm. And so verse 1, Psalm 15 reads, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy mountain? The uh, word sanctuary in your Bible might say tent. And tent and mountain, which is Mount Zion, uh, speak of the place where worship was said to be centered back then. Uh, And the sanctuary and, and Mount Zion were considered to be places that most intimately symbolized the presence of God. And the word tent or sanctuary, it, it was a temporary dwelling place. It could be moved. And so there's this idea of who, who is worthy to, to go in and to go out of God's presence in his sanctuary. And then there's that more permanent uh, implication of the holy mountain i mean obviously the holy mountain is not going to move and so the question is who may live on your holy mountain and so you get both those questions that i asked earlier so so who can go in and out of the very presence of god with with no obstruction who would be eligible to do such a thing and then who is eligible what kind of person can go into the presence of god and remain there forever bottom line what the psalmist is asking is the question that I suggested that you might have asked Kendra as you came in this morning who's worthy to enter into the presence of God and to worship and to remain there and in a way verse one could could stand as a rhetorical question because it's going to become very obvious very quick that no one in and of themselves is worthy to enter into God's presence None of us cuts the grade that we need, the standard we need to reach to freely come into the presence of God. But the psalmist goes on to answer his question. And as we consider his answers to the question, if you're like me, you're going to find these answers are kind of disturbing. God has... Very high standards. When we come into his presence, we're standing on holy ground. As we consider these answers, as we reflect on what the psalmist is trying to communicate to us, it should have a significant impact on the way you approach God and the way you worship God. And so in verses 2 through 5, the psalmist gives us 10 answers to the question. And uh, many have suggested various ways that you can group up the answers to to make it easier to remember, to make more sense of it. I'm not going to take the time to go through every one of the 10 answers in detail. Uh, Just quickly, we're going to walk through each one. But what I would suggest is that the first two answers kind of sum up the answer to the question of who's worthy to enter, who's worthy to enter into the presence of God and remain forever. Uh, And then the last eight answers kind of flesh out that answer that we get in the first two, uh, in verses uh, two of Psalm 15. So the question is asked, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy mountain? So we come to the first answer, those whose walk is blameless. And what the psalmist is saying is that the person who can come into the presence of God unobstructed and remain there forever is the one whose way of life or or pattern of life is free of evil. This person lives in total obedience to God, maintains perfect integrity. And it's not just a good moment in the person's life. It's not just what they do when they come to the temple or they come to church on a Sunday. It's their normal routine, it's their regular pattern. So that's the first answer. Now, I don't know about you, but about now, I'm ready to give up because I know that that doesn't include me. But the psalmist continues Who is worthy to enter into the presence of God and to remain there forever? those whose walk is blameless, and secondly, those who do what is righteous. So this person who's eligible to come into the presence of God, unobstructed, freely, is the person whose conduct meets God's perfect standards. Who's always doing God's will. And so there's the answer. We we could end there. So who in and of themselves can enter into the presence of God and remain forever? It's the person whose walk is blameless, whose way of life is perfect, who's always living in obedience to God, who maintains perfect integrity, whose action, whose, whose conduct is always in perfect conformance to God's holy standard, who's always doing God's will. That's the answer. And so for those of you who are here this morning and you know you fit those first two answers, you're free. You're free to come into the presence of God and to remain there forever. Then the psalmist continues, and and I think you can understand these last um, eight answers as just kind of fleshing out, what does it look like to be living in conformity with those two requirements, the first two? And I'm sure the psalmist could have given 110 but he just chose to give us eight more answers, and so let's just walk through those—the verses, um, the end of verse two to the end of verse, or uh, about halfway through verse five. So we got those whose walk is blameless, those who do it is righteous, and what's that look like? Those who speak the truth from their hearts. So this person, at the very core of their being, is honest, has perfect integrity. There's no hidden agenda. No hint of hypocrisy. Fourth, who have no slander on their tongues. This person is not the kind of person that goes around gossiping. Doesn't go around spreading false stories or harmful uh, uh, details uh, about another person. Who do their neighbors no wrong. This kind of person would never do anything to hurt or harm or or cause misery to another person who casts no slur on others. Not only do they not gossip, but they, they wouldn't say something to taunt or to criticize or to discredit another person. This person despises those whose ways are vile, but honors whoever fears the Lord. That's kind of a mouthful. I don't want to go too much into it, but simply what it's saying is this kind of person invites the influence into their lives, to impact their lives, of those who honor and fear God. And they don't invite the influence that would impact their lives of those who intentionally and habitually dishonor God, give God no mind, and sin. It has nothing to do with evangelism. It has no- nothing to do with loving our neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be. This is, this, this is about the company that we bring around us that will influence our life. And that's why we bring them around. And so the person, this, this righteous and blameless person, wants nothing to do with that which is vile, which literally means rotten, which has been set aside. And in the, in the uh, implication here, God is set aside because the vile person has no regard for God. So God has set him aside. And so the righteous and blameless person is just, I don't want that influence in my life. Who keeps their oaths even when it hurts? This person does what they say they'll do, even, even when it's going to cost them. And I was reminded that just to, on, on Friday, a friend of, I guess, a relative of ours who has a beautiful cottage and they have a beautiful church service uh, up at their cottage every weekend. And uh, she was sharing with us how she'd promised a coworker that whenever it was, she would attend uh, this coworker's child's christening. And she finds out that it's going to be today, so she's probably not feeling so bad because it's raining. But she said to us, "You know what? I made a promise." And as much as this is the third weekend in a row she has to leave her cottage early for obligations, but she made a promise, and she was going to carry it through regardless of what it cost. Who lends money to the poor without interest or usury, as Amanda uh, Amanda's translation said? The Hebrews were forbidden to charge another Hebrew interest. And so this righteous and blameless person would never take advantage of someone who is in a less fortunate situation. And then finally it says that this person does not accept bribes against the innocent. This righteous and blameless person refuses to twist justice selfish gain so the psalmist gives us 10 answers to the question and then he leaves us with a promise whoever does these things will never be shaken the righteous and blameless person who, who in perfect conformity is able to answer affirmatively to all of these answers will never get an eviction notice They can freely enter into the presence of God and stay there forever and be assured that they'll never be kicked out of his presence. A great promise, but I'm assuming that most of us are going, okay, I'm not there. The promise isn't really for me. So what do you think of Psalm 15? Maybe you're questioning, how in the world is that a life passage for Brent? Sounds uh, like a passage that we might be better off not having heard or not having explained to us. Maybe you're going, boy, this is one of those Sundays I wish I'd stayed in bed rather than come to church and get steamrolled or, over by a passage. But what do we do with Psalm 15? A seemingly depressing and impossible psalm. let me just end with three reflections. First of all, we can't help when we read Psalm 15 but be confronted with the holiness of God. Though Psalm 15 is considered to be entrance liturgy, the reality is By the time we get to verse 2, we realize that none of us in and of ourselves is good enough, is is capable of passing the grade, of being able to enter into the presence of God in and of ourselves. You see, the very nature of God is, raises a seemingly impossible problem. You see, I kind of joked about Buckingham Palace and, and, and knocking on the door and, and asking if we can come in for tea and, or even bringing your suitcase and thinking that you might actually get to stay in the palace for a while. God wants people to knock on his door. God's desire is to have tea. He'd love for you to come and live in His palace. But the problem is, His holiness and His justice, which are perfect, does not allow Him to tolerate those who can't live up to these standards to be in His presence. What is sin? Sin literally means to fall short of a standard, to miss the mark. So our desire is to come into the presence of God freely, to to remain with him forever. And yet the Bible tells us that God is holy and that he's just, meaning he has to act on the basis of his holiness. He can't tolerate sin. He can't condone it. He can't look on it. He can't just wipe it under the carpet. He must deal with it. And that means if God must deal with sin, that means he must deal with sinful people meaning those who can't pass the grade of Psalm 15, God must deal with us because he's holy and because he's just. And I often wonder, do we really appreciate the holiness of God? Do we really appreciate what it is that makes God holy? Holy. Those things about God that set him apart from us, that that make him different from us. Those things about God that that sets him above us, that makes him an object of our worship and our awe. Do we appreciate those things about him? Because those things speak of his holiness. Those things that make him different, that set him apart from us, they reflect, they speak of his holiness. Those things that set God against us, his hatred of sin, his insistence, insistency that sin be dealt with, that sets God against us, making him uh, something to be feared a person to be feared. All of that reflects his holiness. Do we appreciate his holiness? What's our attitude as we come into his presence? What's our attitude when we enter into the presence of God in prayer? Prayer. I often think of that in our own home life. At times, even mention it around the dinner table when when one of the kids gives thanks, and it's almost like, okay, someone's got to give thanks for food, boom, oh dear God. Okay, did, did you ever even think about the fact that you were entering into the very throne room of God to give thanks for this food? How we enter into God's presence prayerfully reflects our attitude concerning His holiness. What's our attitude as we corporately gather together to worship God in His holiness? This morning I was here early with with Lauren and the praise team and, and that was one of the questions that I knew I was going to ask this morning that really challenged me. What is my attitude when I come here on a Sunday morning? And I ask you the same question. What's your attitude when you come here on a Sunday morning? When from the moment I wake up to the moment I walk through the door, there's been bickering and arguing and complaining with my family or my spouse? That reflects my attitude. Coming before God in worship. when we habitually show up five minutes after the service starts, that reflects our attitude towards worship. When we sit in a Sunday morning and we're yawning the whole way through because of what we've done the night before, it reflects the attitude that we're bringing as we come corporately to worship a holy God. When we sit here for an hour and a half and ask, what's in it for me? Or when we complain that what's taking place isn't really exactly my favorite thing. It reflects our attitude that we bring when we gather to worship a holy God. When we come to the table and all we can think about is ourselves. And Stan, thank you for that reminder a few weeks ago. It reflects the attitude that we bring as we corporately gather together to worship. What is your attitude? As you come to worship a holy God. And I realize there are two extremes that we can be tempted to move towards. There are those who are so convinced that the gulf between who and what we are and who and what God is, is so impossible to ever get across. It's not even worth trying, and so they just give up. God would never even want a person like me in the, into his presence, let alone stay with him forever. And we preach to that all the time. But there's another extreme that maybe more of us are guilty of because I know I'm guilty of. And it's the casual and thoughtless approach to God. It's where the holiness of God, we just kind of put it on the shelf. And we pride ourselves in the New Testament teaching that we can boldly and confidently enter into the presence of God. To the point that we start treating God as if He's just a buddy and chum. We smack Him on the back and say, Hey, bet you're glad I made it this morning. He's a holy God, a friend, a father, but a holy and perfect God. The second reflection is the fact that the house rules haven't changed. You're probably waiting for me to give you the New Testament loophole or shortcut from what seems to be a pretty impossible psalm. But nothing's changed. God hasn't lowered his standards. If he did, that would be a direct reflection on his character. The expectation from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the same. It's holiness. It's perfection. We stand on the same ground. Equal footing. So where's the hope? Which is my final reflection. Because yes, I'm not going to, or no, I'm not going to give you a a, a shortcut or a loophole, but I am going to give you hope. And the hope of Psalm 15 is why I love Psalm 15. Earlier I said it was entrance liturgy. But there was one other element about entrance liturgy that I, on purpose, left out. You see, Psalm 15 reminded those would-be worshipers who wanted to come into the presence of God that on their own, they fall short. They can't live up to the standards. And it reminded them that they desperately needed a sacrifice. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so once a year, the high priest would go into that most holiest of places and would sacrifice, make sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. Good for a year. And they had their feasts and their festivals that reminded them that they needed a sacrifice. They needed a sacrifice. And nothing has changed. For those of us, and I think it's all of us, that can't meet this standard can't live up to these expectations in and of ourselves we need a sacrifice and the difference is god provided god sent jesus to be our sacrifice in hebrews the writer to the hebrews speaks of exactly what i've been talking about In Hebrews 9, he says, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that forever those who are being made holy. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised. Who can freely enter into the presence of God? Who is able to come into the presence of God and remain forever? The person who realizes that in and of themselves, they can't live up to Psalm 15, but instead put their faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. God's sacrifice sent for us to be our substitute, to pay our price. And as we put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us, The Bible tells us that his righteousness is credited to our account. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's the hope that we find in Psalm 15, the hope we find in Scripture. I'm going to ask Amanda and the praise team to come on up. And Amanda, I'm going to ask you to do uh, what we talked about. And so the praise team is going to sing through this song for us uh, together. We're just going to sit and reflect on the words. These words really uh, fit well with what we've talked about this morning. Uh, Then Amanda is going to invite you to stand uh, and join with the praise team uh, as they sing it through. And then we will come and facilitate the table.